This is Deborah from Southern California, and you are listening to California Dreamin' on the Orbital Jigsaw Network. This episode of California Dreaming is brought to you by Blueberry. Creating a podcast isn't that simple. It's more than just recording yourself and uploading it. To really get your show to be everything you want it to be, you're going to need a little more than that. You need easy and reliable hosting so your time can be spent creating your content. The most accurate download stats so you know if you're reaching the audience that you're wanting to. And a web page that makes setting up totally easy on you and won't take up too much of your valuable time. And Blueberry offers all of this and more for hosts and aspiring hosts alike. Simple media hosting, a fully integrated WordPress website with their PowerPress sites. So... If you already have a podcast or you've always dreamed about starting one, head over to www.orbitaljigsaw.com slash dream to sign up, and the first month is on us. The Blueberry support team is available to walk you through those steps of migrating your show without losing any subscribers, or to get you started in the process of launching your new show. With the first month for free using promo code DREAM, you've got no excuses. Let's get started. I want to take the time to thank you for all the feedback regarding California Dreaming's most recent Patreon bonus, The Tale of Daniel Wozniak. If you haven't listened or you have not heard the story, he is the Southern California former community theater actor who murdered two friends. One, Sam Herr, in order to steal his money, and the other, Julie Kibuishi, in order to set Sam up to make it appear he murdered her, all in an effort to be able to take his bride on a tropical honeymoon. For as little as $1 a month, you can hear this story along with at least 15 other episodes of California Dreaming that aren't available anywhere else. Thank you again for all your continued support. Before we start the show, I need to provide you with this warning. This episode contains details involving the abuse and the murder of a young child and may be disturbing and triggering for some listeners. I was asked in the group this week by Jorge G if there were any cases that I would flat out refuse to do, or if there were any cases that you all would refuse to listen to. And I mentioned that I shy away from cases involving cannibalism and necrophilia. And it is likely that if we do ever cover a story with those elements being part of the crime, I would probably skip over those kinds of details. Some of you answered that cases with children are a hard pass, and I hadn't realized that there had been somewhat of a barrage of cases involving young children, and those are not the ones I shy away from, though I do feel like these stories definitely hit me hard emotionally, and I was having a hard time finishing up writing this. This is another case involving a child, and... I do feel compelled to tell these stories because I want to talk about them and remember them. And it saddens me when a life is snuffed out so young and their time on earth was too short. But I like being able to keep their memory alive, even when the details of their story are hard. So no, I don't want you to have to skip our episodes, but it is completely understandable if you do. If you find the subject matter of crimes involving children to be too disturbing to listen to, this may be one to pass on. Listener discretion is strongly advised. And lastly, 
I need to thank you all for being here for this very special vacation series episode of California Dreaming. We took a poll on the location for today's story, and then we voted for the case. Our very kind and sweet and new dog mommy, Crystal Mack, is one of our group administrators of our Facebook page. And while she's originally from Texas, she currently lives in North Carolina. So this episode is for her current home state. And as you know, we are eventually going to get to all 50 states, I hope. But as a gesture of gratitude for our admins, we are going to visit their individual locales. We still have Lisa, who's from Arizona, Jen, who is from Ontario, Canada, Randy, who is from Utah, Valerie, who is from New York, and Emily, who's from California. I might have to figure out something different because most things we cover are already in California, obviously. And of course, both Kim H. and Rebecca J. are from the UK. And we've already visited there with our James Bolger case. So... Thank you again to the admins for helping to keep things smooth in the group. And if anyone left the group because of the meme war, please come back. It's over and a winner has been declared. Thank you. North Carolina is the backdrop of some very popular cases and true crime stories, including the mysterious death of Kathleen Peterson when she somehow ended up at the bottom of a staircase on December 9th, 2001, with a seemingly overabundance of injuries inconsistent with a fall. There is a serial killer known as the Taco Bell Strangler, Henry Wallace, who earned that moniker because he was the manager of, you guessed it, a Taco Bell, and some of his victims he knew through his job there. He was convicted of murdering 10 women in Charlotte and is currently on death row. Then there's the case of Ira Yarmolenko, which is one of my favorite stories I've heard out of North Carolina. And I was kind of hoping her case would win the vote, but I guess there's nothing stopping us from covering her mysterious death in a bonus or something like that. And speaking of Ira Yarmolenko, I don't know what you listening think, but I believe that she took her own life and that two men were wrongly imprisoned for her death. I feel terribly for Ira's family because they want to believe so strongly that she did not kill herself, that the importance of having Mark Carver, the only surviving apparent suspect, to be convicted of her murder, sitting in jail, even though there is strong evidence to the contrary, pointing to Ira's death being a suicide. It's very, very sad. The case that did come in second on our poll is the unsolved murder of Faith Hedgepath, a third-year undergraduate student at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, discovered bludgeoned to death in her apartment on September 7, 2012, which is hopefully one that I can do a bonus attachment for this vacation series, time permitting. So North Carolina has given us some pretty heavy cases including the one that we're going to talk about today. This story that we chose involves the trope of the wicked stepmother. In some very popular fiction stories and fairy tales, most famously in stories like Hansel and Gretel, Snow White, and Cinderella, with some stories dating back to the late 1600s, 
And while I was looking around, thinking about the story that we're going to talk about, I came across a couple of articles about stepmothers and how perceptions of them are often associated with them being particularly cruel towards their stepchildren, especially stepdaughters. In some, not all fairy tales, stepmothers are often the villains and their stepchildren are the targets of their spites and unkindnesses. But studies have shown that the role of the stepmother can be a force behind keeping a family from falling apart and are able to help and support children when the family dynamics are shifting as a result of divorce and remarriage. As long as the stepmother and stepfathers as well, but I'm focusing on stepmothers because they are often maligned in these fiction stories. As long as the stepparent has a clear and defined role, which isn't always easy, but it's not impossible. If it can be accomplished effectively, it can help ease the potential effects of divorce, such as emotional and behavioral issues, aggression, sleep disorders, troubles in school, or general confusion or fears of abandonment. The stepmother can indeed have a very positive impact on children, because studies have shown damaging effects on children stem from the problems and conflict leading up to the divorce, not necessarily the divorce itself. So it's clear to see the importance of a healthy transition into a new family structure to help make the landing a little bit softer for the kids. Today, I'm going to tell you a story about a little girl who in her very short time on earth overcame many tribulations and challenges in her lifetime. She was impossibly adorable. She had these freckles across her cheeks and across her nose. This smile, just, this girl could melt your heart. And she really could have had so much to not smile about. She was truly one of the most extraordinary young girls I've read and heard about in recent years. And I am so pleased and thankful to have been given the opportunity to remember her here today because of your votes on our two polls on Facebook. In this 76th episode of California Dreaming, a very special vacation series episode, The Tale of Zara Claire Baker. The world would get to know Zara Claire Baker on October 9th, 2010, when her father, Adam Baker, made a faithful 911 call at approximately 2 p.m. that afternoon. He was calling the Hickory, North Carolina Police Department to report his daughter missing. Well, we would go on to learn about Zara, who she was, what happened to her in her 10 short years, what became of her, and everything that led up to where we would find ourselves looking at her adorable little freckled face splashed across our TVs and social media, not to mention across two continents and everywhere in between that would shock us and break our hearts. But before we get to what prompted Adam to make that phone call, let's go back to the very beginning. Zara was born November 16, 1999, only 98 days after I had my one and only child. She was born to mother Emily Diedrich and father, whom I mentioned, Adam Baker, and they lived in Wagga Wagga, 
which is located about halfway between Sydney and Melbourne, in the state of New South Wales and Australia. Sadly, Zara's mother, Emily, battled postpartum depression following her birth and made the difficult choice to surrender sole custody to Adam when Zara was only eight months old. In 2004, Adam, now a single dad, decided that the best thing would be to head home to his parents' house so he could not only look for some stable work, but also have a family support system to help him with raising Zara. And would he ever need it? Not just family, but also the community. So he moved to the northeastern coastal town of Garou, Queensland, where he found work at a sugar mill, which is pretty much what the town of about under 400 is known for, sugar production. While he was working, Zara was cared for by her grandmother, Adam's mom, Karen. Then, in 2005, Zara, at the age of six, was diagnosed with bone cancer. The cancer had worsened, leading doctors to have to amputate Zara's left leg just about above the knee. And, as heartbreaking as that may sound, to Zara, all was well. Because the bright side was, she was going to get a Barbie leg. Nothing to fret over, right? Nope. Not when you're going to get a Barbie leg. Cancer would again attack Zara's little body a year later, when it was found that it had spread to her lungs, doctors having discovered small tumors. The growth of the cancer was halted by treatments, but her hearing was adversely affected, requiring Zara to be fitted with hearing aids in both ears. Despite all of this, Zara would never be kept down. Her smile continued to shine through. She was one happy little girl. Wendy Wyke met Zara at the children's hospital as her own daughter was there being treated. The girls used to play and do their homework together. Of Zara, she told the Winston-Salem Journal, quote, She was always hopping around on her crutches flat out through the ward and was always full of life and energy and was always happy considering the illness that she had been fighting. My husband and I used to marvel at the obvious love her dad and her grandmother had for her and how they both put their lives on hold to help her with her treatments. And in an article in the Townsend Bulletin, journalist Jessica Johnston wrote, quote, They don't make them much tougher than little Zara Baker. The eight-year-old Guru girl has overcome more challenges than most people would in a lifetime, but nothing could wipe the smile off that bubbly youngster's face. For any single parent raising a child on their own, it is no doubt difficult. Adam Baker, likely knowing that he was going to need help when mom was no longer able to be there for Zara, he turned to his own mother for support, not even knowing the struggles that they would have to go on to face with two bouts of cancer, a leg amputation, a partial lung removal, and permanent hearing loss. And his little girl would come through it all with flying colors. So Adam 
living in a tiny town with his parents, a single dad to a child who has undoubtedly been through a lot already. He, understandably, was lonely. And in at least one documentary that I watched, he was portrayed as a regular marijuana smoker, as he was depicted as spending a lot of his free time smoking and searching the internet for female companionship. Not judging, but it didn't seem as though Adam was in that great of a place, which likely caused him to be also somewhat vulnerable. Adam's internet searches took him to a website called IMVU, which is a social networking site where you interact with each other as an avatar that the user creates. I did read that IMVU is not an acronym for anything, nor do the initials stand for anything specific. It's just some letters put together. But then I also read that it stood for Instant Messaging Virtual Universe. I read it described as a gothic website, but I went to the site, though I didn't join. It does not appear to be exclusively gothic. It looks like you can join different rooms, and I'm thinking there could be one for gothics, which I'm assuming that's where Adam ended up. But he would meet a woman named Elisa Fairchild, who described herself as a 40-something gothic fairy, and her IMVU avatar had red angel's wings. Let's take a moment to get to know Elisa and what her life was like leading up to her and Adam meeting via the social networking site. By the time Elisa and dreamers usually we call the criminal defendants in our cases by their last name, but because of her many marriages and the fact that she would eventually take Zara's and Adam's last name, I'm just going to call her Elisa. So by the time Elisa met Adam, she was a woman who was very much sought after. Sought after by bill collectors, police, social workers, and a bevy of husbands and ex-husbands. People didn't really catch on to all of Elisa's patterns and behaviors because once she decided to leave one relationship to move on to the next, it was her MO to cut off ties with anyone and everyone associated with the previous relationship and start up fresh. In the span of about seven years, Elisa is known to have had at least 42 different addresses, and there was at least one stretch of about three years where she was married to three different men simultaneously. And I, for one, am stumped as to what any of these men actually saw in Elisa. I mean, far be it for me to judge, but not only is she kind of average-ish, she isn't exactly the nicest person in the world either. All I can guess is that her online persona and her in-person persona is manipulative and fake. Otherwise, I can't imagine why these men would be flocking to her in droves. But whatever she was doing, it was working. Once this story began to unfold back in 2010 in North Carolina, people started coming out of the woodwork, dozens of them, who painted a dreadfully unpleasant portrait of Elisa, laying out a lifetime worth of deceptions, shams, and lies, and how she would home in on vulnerable men. She targeted them, some of them struggling with disabilities. She'd marry them, and then she would become mentally, emotionally, and physically abusive. 
Those who knew her in high school described her as being an attractive young woman, and she learned early on how to be very cunning and manipulative. Though she struggled with her weight and this caused her a certain level of insecurity, it did not affect her ability to attract men. There was just something about her that they were drawn to, and as she got older, she would gain more and more weight, but the men never stopped flocking to her. Elisa was the middle of three girls. Her parents worked in the western part of North Carolina in the textile and furniture factories. Her father is said to have been the one to dote on his girls, but mom was the one who laid down the law and doled out the discipline. Elisa's aunt reported that as she got into her teenage years, she began rebelling, started fighting with her mother and talking back and using foul language, to which her mother would smack her across the face. And it pretty much happened regularly. In school, she was always popular and she would go to all the social activities, extracurriculars, football games, dances, etc. Eventually, Elisa distanced herself from going out and the social gatherings and became engrossed with socializing online instead of in person. And there, she would reinvent herself, calling herself Elisa instead of the traditional spelling of her name, E-L-I-S-A, she spelled it E-apostrophe-L-E-S-A. She became this dark yet glamorous woman and men found her alluring, including Zara's dad, all the way over in his small corner of Australia on the other side of the world. In high school, Elisa dated a guy named Jerry Winkler, and it had been kind of an on-again, off-again sort of a thing. But both of them would end up dropping out of high school and going their separate ways and losing touch for about a year. And he randomly bumped into her one day while getting gas. And by this time, Elisa had already become a mother. She had a newborn baby girl with her named Amber. She told Jerry that Amber's dad walked out on them. So he asked Elisa if she wanted to get together, maybe go out on a date, get reacquainted, and she accepted. The following week, he asked her to marry him, and she accepted that too. But there was a hiccup. Neither of them was 18 years old yet, so they needed both of their parents' permission to do so. I didn't specifically read anything about Elisa's parents objecting to the union, but it seemed as though Jerry's parents were not too keen on the idea. So in order to get them to be more willing to let the young couple get married, they lied to his parents and told them that Amber was his daughter. They even went so far as to doctor up a fake blood test to prove it to be true. Elisa and Jerry got married on September 14, 1985, both of them only 17 years old. And as you could probably guess, Jerry almost immediately regretted it. It only took a matter of days for him to realize that he was way in over his head. In his words, quote, I was 17 and married with this kid and it hit me all at once and I wanted out. And you can bet that his parents were pissed off too since Jerry had tricked them into signing permission for their son to get married. They quickly filed for an annulment and went before a judge who granted it. This marriage lasted less than four months. About a year later, 
Elisa met a man named Joseph Proctor. He had been involved in a car accident in which he almost died. This left him with a permanent disability and he walked with a limp and it was quite cumbersome. Elisa dated Joseph for several months when one day she told him that she was pregnant. When he received the news, he asked her to marry him and she accepted. So Elisa, only 19 at the time, and Joseph, who was 28, they got married on September 5, 1987. A few months following their wedding, their son was born and they named him Douglas. The following year, they had a second child, a daughter they named Brittany. This marriage, though, it lasted longer than the first, was wrought with difficulties. The home the couple were living in and raising their children in, it was property owned by Joseph's mother. A year and a half into the marriage, in April of 1989, his mother went before a judge to file for a restraining order against her daughter-in-law to keep her away from the property, accusing Elisa of stealing items from the home that belonged to her, as well as causing a great deal of destruction to her property. In response to the filing for the restraining order, Joseph's mother said that Elisa said to her, quote, If I have to get out of here, I'll burn down the house. I'm going to kill this baby. I'm going to wreck this car. I'll kill those kids. I don't know if the threat worked, but Elisa and Joseph seemed to patch things up in their marriage, at least for the time being and his mother ended up withdrawing her filing for the restraining order. Elisa would end up walking out on Joseph on Christmas Day of 1990, and that was the end of their relationship. She took her daughters, Amber and Brittany, with her, but she left their son, Douglas, with him. The divorce was finalized sometime in 1992. Andrew Harris saw Elisa in a bar in Lincolnton, North Carolina, one day after he got off work from his job at a textile plant. She spotted him as well and waved. He sat down next to her, and she was drinking a little bit of Jack and struck up a conversation. He described her as very easygoing, easy to talk to, and they hit it off from the start. And in a matter of months, on April 17, 1992, Andrew would become the third man to walk Elisa down the aisle in under seven years' time. And it would not be long before the real Elisa began to emerge once again. She changed like her whole personality changed after they wed. He described her as being angry all the time, and she would direct her anger at her girls, frequently yelling and physically abusing both of them, having stated in an interview, quote, I'd say to her, why do you have them in their rooms again? And she'd just start mumbling about how she didn't want to deal with them. The truth is, she treated them like dirt. Later on, reflecting back upon their marriage, Andrew would say, quote, This is a woman who thought she could talk her way out of anything, that she was smarter than everybody else. But she never told the truth, and she hurt a lot of people. There was nothing nice about that woman. And then, one day early in 1994, less than two years into their marriage, the couple got into a heated argument, which caused Andrew to leave their home for a few days. When he finally came back, the house was completely barren. 
all of their furniture, everything that she owned, everything that he owned, all of his guns, his hunting stuff, his fishing rods, everything she took. Then there was Daryl Putnam. A neighbor friend of his told him that he knew a woman that would be perfect for him, a woman named Elisa. Dreamers, this does not sound like a good neighbor, a good friend, or a good judge of people if he described Elisa as the quote-unquote perfect woman. Daryl struggled with meeting women because from very early in his childhood, he was deaf. He could understand most speech when he had his hearing aids on, but it was very hard for him to be on the dating scene. So having been introduced by this neighbor friend who probably himself makes bad life choices, Elisa and Daryl went out on a date, hitting up a local bar. Things seemed to have gone well. She told him she had two daughters. I guess her son Douglas doesn't count anymore, apparently. But she made up one big lie about one of her girls. She told Daryl that her eldest, eight-year-old Amber, had cancer. So I'm certain this fib really tugged at his heartstrings because within a few weeks' time, they were living together. And it was around this time that she moved in with Daryl that Elisa's mother died, and then she began to put on some serious weight. She would disappear on Daryl for days at a time. She was constantly going out and drinking and partying, whatever she was doing, but she was rarely at home. And when she was there, she was constantly angry, and staying true to form was consistently abusing her girls. None of this stopped Daryl from wanting to move forward with their relationship, and the couple got married on February 4th, 1995. And like Elisa's previous three marriages, this one quickly spiraled downward as well. And it all came to head when he arrived one home one day from work and found Elisa in bed with another man. He turned around and walked out the door and headed to his mother's house. When he went back a few days later, he came home to find their place completely empty of all their belongings, just like Elisa had done to husband number three. She even had the audacity to steal Daryl's hearing aids, which were very expensive to replace. Daryl was genuinely heartbroken. He had wanted and desired a family of his own, and even though Elisa's girls weren't his, he had grown quite attached to them, even putting up with Elisa's awful behavior and temper for the girls, but ended up having his heart broken anyway. When Jeffrey Alred met Elisa, just as in all her previous relationships, he hit it off with her right away as well. They would spend evenings driving around Hickory, going to some of the more upscale neighborhoods and talk about their futures, their hopes and dreams. Elisa dreaming of one day living in one of these beautiful homes that they'd pass by. Jeffrey and Elisa would tie the knot on October 3rd, 1997. And if you're losing track, Jeffrey was husband number five in just over 12 years' time. But just like her previous marriages, Elisa changed as soon as he put a ring on it. In his words, quote, It was like a light switch went off, and she said, I got him now. 
He alleged that Elisa physically abused him, something fierce. She had taken a baseball bat to him, she had thrown rocks at him, and he was terrified of her. And he's described as being six foot two or 1.88 meters tall or 260 pounds or about 180 kilograms. So afraid of her, in fact, when he finally decided he couldn't take it anymore, he waited for Elisa to go to Walmart with her daughters. He stood there and watched the taillights of her car fade into the distance. He grabbed the suitcase that he had previously packed and hidden away in the back of the closet, and he got into his truck and quickly drove away. Kind of sounds like that Julia Roberts movie, Sleeping with the Enemy, right? Except she faked her death, and I'm pretty sure the thought crossed his mind as well, just to make sure Elisa wouldn't be able to track him down. And that was the last time that he ever saw her, in the spring of 1998, just months after they had gotten married. And he was so terrified of Elisa that he didn't even file for divorce out of fear of having to see her in court. Still married to Jeffrey, Elisa met a man named Aaron Young. He had quite a difficult childhood. He had rickets, a disease of the bones caused by malnourishment, which can lead to some skeletal deformities. He underwent a number of operations on one of his legs and he had to have a steel rod inserted in the other. With these conditions going on, Andrew grew up to be a very insecure and self-conscious young man. So when he met Elisa, it was the very first time in his life that any woman had given him the time of day. And she was still kind of reeling from the fact that Jeffrey was the one who left her, not the other way around. So Aaron, in a way, was there to help her dust herself off from that. And you know how I just mentioned that he had a difficult childhood? Well, he had actually just left childhood a few years earlier because when he met Elisa, he was only 20. And by this time, she was 30. And on August 8th, 1998, Aaron became husband number six. Let's do the math. So that's six husbands between 85 and 98. So just under 13 years. That's almost a new husband every two years. And it would be during the sixth marriage to Aaron that Elisa discovered the wonders and joys of the internet. And she would sit there for hours online, chatting on social networking sites. And it seemed she was pretty content for a while spending her time doing this while married to Aaron. And this one would last almost 10 years. I would assume that she really just had no reason to constantly go out looking for other men. She found contentment being on the computer at home. That was her new way of garnering attention from men. And that's where all her energy was channeled. She changed her hair color to a deep black with red streaks. And she began getting some tattoos. And the reason why the marriage ended wasn't because of Elisa's raging temper or violence, but rather Aaron's mom having actually spotted Elisa making out with another man in a car, which she promptly reported to her son. And this ultimately led to their marriage coming to an end in 2007. And then in 2008, Elisa announced to her friends, or at least people who knew her in some capacity, as I don't know how many people considered her to be a friend, 
being that she doesn't strike me as being all that friendly to begin with. Anyway, she announced that she would be going to Australia and never coming back, that she had met her soulmate. Her most recent brother-in-law would say that nobody really took her seriously anyway, because she was always making up stories. But as it would turn out, she was half serious. She was going to Australia, but it wouldn't be the last North Carolina would see or hear from Elisa, unfortunately. Well, I'm sure if she had stayed in Australia, she would be wreaking havoc over there as well, and I wouldn't wish that mess on anyone. But either way, she was going there to meet up with the man that she had met on IMVU, Adam, and his then eight-year-old little girl who had survived cancer twice, Zara. In her wake, back in North Carolina, she left behind a bunch of angry people. Landlords who had her served with eviction notices, a laundry list of judgments and liens against her, unpaid utility notices, bills on collectors. She was like this leech that went from man to man, place to place, bleeding everyone dry as she went along. I don't even think I read anything about any place where she legitimately held down a job. And on top of this, she had a lengthy criminal history as well. Very checkered, including charges of drug dealing, forgery, and assault. When Adam met Elisa for the first time at the airport, he was 33 and Elisa was 40. But this time, family and friends were very suspicious of her. And she seemed to just have one outrageous story after another. She told people that she had once been a police officer but ended up being shot in the leg and unable to work anymore. She also told people that she was a bounty hunter, so naturally people were like, yeah, sure, okay, whatever. And people couldn't help but wonder what business she had all the way over there in Australia. If I had to fancy a guess, I'd say she ran out of men to marry in Hickory, or they were all afraid of her. Either way, she ended up living with Adam and his parents in Guru, and then, on July 8, 2008, Adam Baker became husband number seven in a small ceremony in the backyard of his family home. And then, in short order, Adam told his family and his friends that he and Zara were going to move to the United States with Elisa. This immediately alarmed everyone because of Zara's health and medical issues. All of her medical care was free of charge there in Australia, and she was receiving the best care the country had to offer. And the real fear is, of course, that Zara would not be able to receive the same level of care at no cost in the United States because she is not a citizen and would all depend on Adam or Elisa or both of them finding a job that would offer health benefits. And even then, there would be no guarantee that all of her medical expenses would be covered. And if you remember, Dreamers, this is the summer of 2008 when the United States was slipping into a recession. I clearly remember it being in July of 2008, just after the 4th of July, that my mom called me and told me that her bank that held every single penny of her life savings and investments had shuttered its doors, and every customer had no access to any of their money deposited at their institutions. So, this is the climate of the economy, that the United States was in 
when Adam made this huge life-changing decision. Now, dreamers, Adam has dealt with a lot of backlash in the choices that he made in the year or two leading up to when our story begins, when we all first heard the name Zara Baker. I really don't want to sit here and shake my finger at the man and tell him what a terrible choice he was making by moving himself and his daughter to the United States so abruptly. But not even knowing how the story would go on to take such a dark turn, just the fact that he would pull Zara away from her home and her community, where she would be guaranteed to have her health and well-being looked after, access to her own doctors and specialists, people who knew her and cared for her. And I have no doubt the best Australia had to offer in the way of medical treatments. That fact alone, that he did that, upsets me. I know that Elisa duped him and had lied to him and manipulated him. When Adam's friends and family, all of the people who helped him with Zara's care questioned his decision to move her to North Carolina, he shut them all down by telling them not to worry about it. Elisa had the job and the money to provide for Sarah's medical care. I can't fault him for believing Elisa's BS, but I can fault him for not having Zara's needs, her care, her well-being at the very top of his priority list. He was only thinking of himself, and there's no amount of convincing me otherwise as I see absolutely zero benefit to moving Zara to the United States. Even if Elisa was telling him the truth and she could provide for Zara's medical care, I don't believe there could have been anything better than the medical treatment that she was getting in her own country. I know Adam Baker struggled. I know he was working hard and was a single dad, and mom struggled with postpartum depression and raising Zara all fell on his shoulders. And then she has bone cancer, and then lung cancer, and then a leg amputated, and then she loses her hearing. It's a lot for any parent to deal with, especially a single parent. But when Adam flippantly met and married a virtual stranger from the internet and moved himself and his daughter thousands of miles away, I'm sorry, but... Adam Baker was concerned only about Adam Baker. Nothing Elisa said to him should have caused him to tear Zara away from her community. By 2008, Zara's cancer had gone into remission just shortly before they moved to North Carolina. So maybe Adam had the sense that Zara's health battles were over. Zara had responded so well to treatment and was so delightful and happy and lively. He could have likely just convinced himself she was fine. And she may very well have been. But what he didn't know was that his new blushing bride had already been a blushing bride a half dozen times over. And when they said I do in his backyard, she was still technically married at the time. So add bigamous to the growing list of things that you would like to call Elisa Baker. I've read reports that Adam and Zara were both excited to move to the United States. And it was like an adventure for them, something different and unique. I also read that Zara didn't want to go. So I guess it all depends on who you're talking to. 
Just before Zara left for the United States, the local community in which they resided, her school and various charities had raised the money to buy a wheelchair for Zara and a new laptop so she could finish her schoolwork from home. She got to visit with members of the Australian military before she got to go to Camp Quality, which is a charity camp for cancer patients. The military soldiers gave Zara a helmet. They let her go inside their armored vehicles and take pictures for their local newspaper. The year that Zara attended Camp Quality, it was the first time she had been well enough to actually go. And she thrived, totally loved it doing all the camp activities and obstacle courses, all the while with one leg, keeping up with kids who had all their limbs. She was the light of the camp, bright, happy, cheerful, inspiring. Her enthusiasm and will to live, to fight when the odds were against her, touched everyone who had the pleasure of knowing her. And her family in Australia would say that Zara did not want to leave behind the family and friends and relationships that she had forged. Either way, there is no way to sugarcoat the story, dreamers. Zara's life had become a living hell as soon as she arrived in Hickory, North Carolina. They first moved in with Elisa's dad, but it's been reported that the situation didn't last long, and her father ended up kicking all of them out purportedly due to the fact that Elisa had been treating Zara so poorly. But by September of 2010, Elisa and Adam were able to get into a small house in Hickory on their own. Now, it seemed as though there was no shortage of people and agencies who knew that Zara was being severely mistreated by Elisa. But if you ask Elisa, she and Zara got along swimmingly. As a matter of fact, according to her, Zara called her mom. Family members of hers and neighbors vividly recall witnessing Elisa strike Zara, that it happened frequently, and Zara was seen regularly with bruises on her face and body. Elisa would keep Zara locked in her room and reportedly only let her out of the room for five minutes a day to eat, which constitutes starvation. There was an occasion when Zara had a pretty severe black eye, and several people saw it, including her dad. And he claimed that when he questioned both Zara and Elisa about it, they both told him that Zara slipped and fell in the bathroom and hit her face on the cabinet. So, because Zara corroborated the story, I assume Adam didn't question the injury any further. But I know that we all know, looking back upon this, And when Adam looks back upon this, it was most likely the fear of being abused more that kept Zara from being able to speak the truth to her dad about what was really going on. Neighbors also reported seeing Elisa force Zara to run up and down a hill nearby their home without her prosthetic leg on, yelling and screaming at her to keep going and moving faster. Can you imagine witnessing something like that? To see this girl hopping on one leg, knowing that she's an amputee, being made to hop uphill as a punishment, it was torture, plain and simple. And how Zara remained in the custody of Elisa and Adam is another issue I will address at the end of this story, because the North Carolina Department of Social Services was contacted 
at least four times in the months leading up to where our story began. By the fall of 2010, after they had moved into their home, neither Adam nor Elisa enrolled Zara into the public school system. In lieu of enrolling her into school, they would have needed to at least register her with their school district with their intentions to homeschool her, which they didn't do either. Family and neighbors began seeing Zara less and less, and soon she was all but completely isolated from the outside world. And according to Adam, he had no idea what was going on with Zara, even admitting that he hadn't seen her for two weeks leading up to his 911 call on October 9, 2010, although he would give conflicting stories about this as well. Adam's 911 call to the police on the afternoon of October 9, 2010, was not the first 911 call to come into dispatch that day from the Baker residence. Early that morning, just after 5 a.m., Elisa had called 911 to report a small brush fire in her backyard. She said she woke up and noticed flames when she was getting out of bed. When firefighters reported to the scene, they quickly extinguished the fire, which turned out to be a pile of mulch that was burning. A few minutes after firefighters arrived, an officer from the Hickory Police Department arrived as well after being summoned to the scene by one of the firemen. As they were working on the fire, one of them had noticed a vehicle parked near the fire. It was a silver 1996 Chevy Tahoe with its passenger side doors open and that there was this envelope that had the name of the local utility company, Duke Energy, printed on it, tucked under one of the windshield wiper blades. Upon closer inspection of the Tahoe, the officer was able to smell gas emanating from inside the vehicle itself and he noticed that there was some handwriting on the envelope under the windshield wiper. When he took a look at what was written on the envelope, it read, quote, Mr. Coffee, you like being in control. Now who is in control? We have your daughter, and your pot-smoking redhead son is next, unless you do what is asked. One million unmarked. We'll be in touch soon. Then, written on the top and bottom of the note were the words, No Cops. Mark Coffey, as it would turn out, owned the home that the Bakers lived in, and they were renting it from him, but the Tahoe belonged to Adam. There was also a second vehicle, a Toyota Camry, parked on the property as well. The officer quickly contacted Mark Coffey, and they were able to ascertain that his daughter was at home as was his son, and they were both fine. The fire investigators did determine that the fire was an act of arson. They found out that Mark Coffey was not only Adam's landlord, but also his boss. And since his daughter was safe at home, authorities and the firefighters ended up leaving the scene, not really knowing what to make of the bizarre ransom note. We will discuss the meaning of this fire a little later on in the story. That same day, which was a Saturday, Adam Baker would make a second call to 911. He again reported to them that the gasoline had been poured in his vehicle, the ransom note that was left on his windshield, 
but this time he told them that he thinks his 10-year-old daughter had been kidnapped. An officer was dispatched to the residence. And with both Elisa and Adam's permission and help, they searched the home and the surrounding area for Zara to no avail. By the next day, the news of Zara having gone missing began to spread through Hickory, and eventually the FBI was alerted to the case as well. It wasn't reported right away as to the reasons why this happened, but we would find out later on that Elisa Baker was arrested the following morning on charges related to the forgery and the property theft that I had mentioned previously. They did not divulge this information right away, but they did say Elisa was in custody for charges unrelated to Zara's disappearance at the time. The FBI and the local police called in the assistance of the South Carolina Search and Rescue Dog Association to help search for Zara. The dog was trained to look for people or bodies and arrived around 1245 the day after Adam's 911 call. The dog was walked inside the home and around the perimeter and the vehicles. About 15 minutes into the search, the dog indicated an alert for the presence of human remains in both vehicles parked on the property. Both cars were taken in for processing, where they would begin to look for clues as to what might have happened to Zara. An amber alert was also issued. Investigators conducted a door-to-door search of the neighborhood, asking for permission to search outbuildings on private properties and in wooded areas but Zara was nowhere to be found. I'm assuming that officers are suspicious of Elisa because they began questioning her, not only about the check fraud or stolen property, but rather about her stepdaughter's disappearance. This is what she told police initially. She, Adam, and Zara had gone to Oktoberfest that Friday evening, which was October 8th and they were there for about two hours between 7 and 9 p.m. Afterwards, they went home. Incidentally, Mark Coffey would tell them that he saw Elisa and Adam at Oktoberfest, and Zara was not with them. Anyway, Elisa said Zara went to bed shortly after they got home, and around 2.30 in the morning, she checked on Zara and then went back to bed. And then she woke up again about three hours later and saw the small fire outside and called authorities. She surmised that someone must have kidnapped Zara during the time the fire was burning amid the chaos. And she also surmised that the fire was likely a ruse to get them up and out of the house so they could, in fact, surreptitiously enter into the home and take Zara without being noticed. But while interviewing Adam... He had a bit of information that took investigators by surprise, and this caused them to become even more concerned about Zara. Adam reported that he had not seen Zara since Wednesday, October 6th, nearly four days before he called 911. How is this possible if Elisa is telling them that the three of them went to Oktoberfest on the 8th? Something wasn't adding up here, and somebody was lying. And Adam Baker and his overly hands-off style of parenting? Many people would go on to question how he was able to go for days, and some have even reported weeks without having laid eyes on his own daughter. 
Some even question whether or not he even saw her on the Wednesday leading up to Zara being reported missing. That it was him sheepishly trying to cover up the fact that he simply wasn't tuned in as to what was going on with his own kid. Is it fair to judge the guy on this? I'm not sure. I mean, it seems strange, but then there's Elisa. What if she's the one who's running this home with an iron fist? Knowing how abusive she's been in the past, maybe Adam was afraid of her too. Maybe when he questioned Elisa about Zara, she shut down the conversation. Or maybe she told him that Zara was asleep or in trouble. Adam has even been known to have said that he thought Zara was being moody and rebellious because she was entering the early stages of puberty. He doesn't strike me as the most astute parent in the world. In that, coupled with Elisa's behaviors, I suppose it's possible he simply didn't know and just trusted and believed whatever it was Elisa was telling him. He just never pushed hard enough to see Zara. Whether he was too tired or working too much or working odd hours, he didn't try to make any kind of physical contact with his child for much longer than many of us would find acceptable, no matter the circumstances. On Monday, October 11, 2010, Adam and the Hickory Police Chief, Tom Adkins, appeared together on Good Morning America to discuss Zara's case and to make a public plea for any information about Zara's whereabouts to please come forward. And it was also around the same time it was reported that Adam did indicate that he believed it was possible that his wife may have had something to do with or some information about what happened to Zara. People still couldn't help wonder how it was that Adam hadn't seen his daughter in the days leading up to her being reported missing and why it was that Elisa had said they all went to Oktoberfest, yet he said that he hadn't seen her since at least the day before that. He also said in another interview that it was two days before Oktoberfest. His discrepancies had people looking at him very suspiciously. The same day that they appeared on Good Morning America, police stated in a news conference that they were unable to find anyone who could verify that they had seen Zara at all in recent weeks. And this would include her own dad stating, quote, We can't confirm anyone has seen Zara within the past month. Without this information, we cannot positively select the area to search for her and cannot confirm with any confidence how long Zara has been missing. While this indeed is not good news for the investigation, they were continuing to press Elisa and Adam both for more information. Investigators know something is up with one, if not both of them. Investigators at this point also told the media that they had issued search warrants for both Elisa's and Adam's vehicles, which they had seized from the home. They also collected an assortment of drug paraphernalia as well. Police also went over into the neighboring county to search the property of a tree maintenance company. This is the company that Adam worked for. On this property is where they would take all the tree trimmings and logs and these things that they turned into mulch piles as well as a wood chipper. 
I don't even want to discuss what the implication of that search was. But the search turned up nothing there on the property anyway. And then, suddenly, the following day after Elisa's arrest on Tuesday, October 12th, the Hickory Police Department abruptly terminated the Amber Alert for Zara. The police chief made the announcement to the media that Elisa Baker had confessed that she wrote the ransom note that was found on Adam's windshield and that the purpose of the note was to confuse and mislead investigators looking into Zara's disappearance. It was later revealed that upon searching the home, they found the utility bill that the envelope that was found on the windshield had come from. The police chief also announced that Elisa was being charged with at least a dozen charges, including obstruction of justice, forgery, writing bad checks, larceny, communicating threats, and driving on a suspended license. And from this point forward in addressing the media regarding Zara's case, the police chief began referring to it as a homicide investigation, though Zara had yet to be found. And he made it clear that the case shifted from a missing persons investigation to a homicide investigation as a direct result of Elisa's admission that she penned the ransom note. Police continued the daunting task of searching the mulch piles using a backhoe at the tree maintenance company yard and sent forensics teams out to examine their wood chipper. As the investigation continued, a theme began to emerge regarding Zara's home life. Many people, neighbors and family alike, echoed the same concerns. Zara was being abused, and Elisa the woman with the short fuse and the reputation for handing down severe physical punishments, was the one abusing Zara. Some knew her to be quick to use her fists when anyone crossed her, and her bite was actually as big as her bark. In one word, Elisa was nasty. A nasty woman, a nasty attitude, a nasty temper. And it seemed as though Zara, once she moved to the United States, bore the brunt of Elisa's rage. I had to stop for a moment when I was writing this, and I thought about this part for a while. I wondered why. And maybe I will pose the question after this episode goes live. But why and how did Elisa Baker look to this child? This beautiful little child who had gone through so much in her short life. Why did she look to her and see her as someone to be used for a target for her abuse? It's hard to try and rationalize an answer that makes any sort of sense. And then, why, why, why was Zara under her care when so many people came forward when she was missing to say, yeah, Elisa was always beating Zara. Just why? People told this to news reporters, television stations, and the nation. A neighbor named Karen Yant said to Fox News, quote, She was always beating her. I told her to stop, but she wouldn't listen to anyone. That poor girl. Or another former neighbor who was interviewed during the search for Zara 
Kayla Rottenberry. She said she was friends with the Bakers while they lived at Elisa's dad's place, and they would see Zara pretty regularly. And there was one day when she saw Elisa, and she had a pretty badly injured hand. It was discolored and swollen, and she inquired about it, stating, quote, She told me that she was trying to spank Zara, and she hit her hand on her prosthetic leg. When Adam asked her about the injury, she told him that she fell and hurt her hand. She didn't want him to know. She knew that he'd be mad. Another neighbor named Brandy Stapleton, who witnessed the injury on Elisa's hand, corroborated the story, indicating that she was told the same manner in which she injured it, that she was trying to spank Zara and her hand came down hard on her prosthetic. So, that is how hard Elisa was trying to beat Zara. And I wonder if Zara knew Elisa was going to either slap or punch her. And I wouldn't be surprised if Elisa's fist was closed and Zara in some manner moved or flinched or shifted in a way to try and fend off the attack and put her leg right in the path of Elisa's incoming fist and she cracked her hand on the prosthesis. I'd say good on Zara for being able to give it right back to that woman. But I just imagined that this would only enrage Elisa even further. And that is just so hard to even want to think about. Former neighbor Brandy Stapleton went on to say to reporters, quote, She wasn't the person that everyone thought she was. And to tell you the truth, I don't even know what that means. Because it seems like everyone is saying what a horrible, abusive piece of shit this woman is. She seems to be exactly the person everyone thinks she is. I don't know. To me, it kind of sounds like a cop-out for these neighbors who witness all of this abuse or evidence of abuse. And they say, but she seemed like a nice person. Or I guess she wasn't the person everyone thought she was. I don't know. None of these people make any sense to me. Or why they would even go on TV and talk about how awful Elisa was to Zara. Why are you going on TV saying this stuff? Did you talk to Adam when this was happening? Did you contact police? Did you make a report to Child Protective Services? What are you doing here then because you're not helping to find Zara? You're just getting on TV to talk about how you are actually part of the problem. Another person who described as being a friend of the bakers decided to speak anonymously because he or she knew that they would be going to be judged for what they were going to say expressed the belief that Elisa was responsible for Zara's disappearance, stating, quote, I hate to say it, but I don't feel good about this. I really think Elisa had something to do with it. Yeah, think, Captain Obvious? Dreamers, Here's the worst part. Apparently, Elisa had been subject to investigations launched by the North Carolina Department of Social Services. But somehow, despite all of these neighbors and witnesses, after investigating, Elisa decided that there was not enough evidence of any wrongdoing on her part and closed their investigation into the alleged abuse being committed against Zara Baker. Yeah, they closed the case. How in the world did this happen? I'll talk more about this towards the end when the state of North Carolina would release their review of this case. 
On Wednesday, October 13, 2010, Elisa went before a judge with her court-appointed attorney to be indicted on charges of obstruction of justice and other charges including forgery and larceny. Her bail was set at $72,200. She would not be able to make bail, and I don't think anyone was rushing to the bank to take out any second mortgages on their homes in order to do so either. The search for Zara continued on as Elisa sat in jail. She was not giving up any information just yet, but I'm assuming a couple of things are going on as law enforcement, the FBI, and the community are out looking for the missing 10-year-old. That Elisa Baker is trying to figure out how she is going to spin this story in her best interest, to make herself out to be a victim, to pin this on someone else and then to work out the best deal possible for herself. She could have been pinning her hopes on the fact that searchers might not be able to find Zara, or she could possibly get away with this. All the while, police are chasing down hundreds of leads that are being called in by the community, including all of these people who say that they knew Zara was being mistreated at home by Elisa. One apartment manager of a place the Bakers had lived at for a time said that he saw Zara on the day that they moved in, but he never saw her again, and he lived right next door. By the end of Thursday, the 13th of October, investigators finished up at the property where Adam worked as the exhaustive search turned up no sign of Zara. The next day, six days after Zara was reported missing on Friday, October 15th, with Adam Baker's consent, police searched their home again, utilizing canine search dogs in an effort to uncover any more possible evidence. I'm certain that they are looking for physical evidence that a murder had taken place on the chance that they are unable to recover Zara's remains. The same day, they served a search warrant to search a former home that the Bakers resided in where the manager told them that they believed that Zara was kept inside the attic And when they looked inside one of the closets of the home, it was evident that a struggle of some sort had taken place inside this closet. In the meantime, notes and flowers and stuffed animals were appearing on the front lawn where Zara lived with her dad and Elisa. Standing out in front, a tearful Adam spoke to the media and thanked the community of Hickory for their outpouring of love and support and their efforts in searching for his daughter. The investigation revealed that some employees at a local furniture store in Hickory saw Zara in the company of Elisa on September 25, 2010, two weeks before she went missing. And this was the last reported sighting of Zara by anyone other than her father or her stepmother. They specifically remember seeing Zara because of her leg, and they heard Elisa call her by her unique name. And they saw Zara watching cartoons that were playing on the TVs displayed in their store. The floor manager remember walking past Zara and gently tapped the little girl on the shoulder as she passed. And Zara turned her head and smiled. A picture of Zara was turned over to investigators taken on August 9th, 2010 by a friend of the family. It showed a visible bruise under Zara's right eye. The friend recalled that Elisa didn't want Zara's picture taken, but the friend could see that Zara was feeling down and wanted to try to encourage a smile on her face by snapping the picture. 
The family friend would admit at the time that the bruise didn't raise an alarm because Elisa had regularly complained about how clumsy Zara was. Probably even went so far to blame it on only having one leg, I'm sure, to bolster her cover-up. But looking back upon the moment, the friend realized that the bruise was likely put there by Elisa. And incidentally, the day that family friend took the picture would be the last day that that family friend would ever see Zara. Like many abusers before and after Elisa, she had excuses at the ready when it came to the bumps and bruises that were clearly visible all over Zara all the time. Another former neighbor even stating to reporters, quote, It was always she fell down or she rolled out of bed or she didn't have her leg on right and she couldn't walk and fell. It was always Zara's fault for her injuries. And of course, with Elisa right there hovering over Zara, all she could do was stand there in petrified silence, nod and concur. Another relative named Brittany Bentley also told reporters much of the same that we've heard over and over, yet it was allowed to carry on, stating, quote, Zara was beat almost every time I was over there for just the smallest things. Elisa would get mad. She would take it out on Zara, things that the kid didn't deserve. She just had a horrible home life. This relative continued to describe how Zara was kept locked in her room and only allowed out for five minutes to eat. And this part just kills me. Brittany Bentley said that everyone close to the bakers knew that Zara's disappearance was inevitable, that it was something that everyone knew was going to happen. Really? And nobody did or said anything. Right. Another neighbor, Renee Bobbitt, called Elisa a cold and harsh parent, stating, quote, just the way she yelled and screamed at her, and I did see her hit the child a couple of times. I should have called and said something then. I wish a million times because no child deserves anything like this. It's really got the whole neighborhood upset because we all love the child. Yeah, well, we all sitting here listening to this wish you'd called a million times too. This neighbor knew Zara had been sent to school at least once with a black eye. And it was shortly after that, Elisa and Adam informed the school that they would be homeschooling Zara from then on. Law enforcement, the men and women dedicated to looking for the little girl. The story of Zara Baker was taking its toll on them as well, with the district attorney of the county, Jay Gaither, telling reporters, quote, The images that you see, the smile, a handicapped girl that age, it's emotionally upsetting. Law enforcement doesn't show it, but they are affected by it. And it was an emotional time for law enforcement and the community alike. The gravity of what took place in their town was hitting them. And the little girl who had survived so much was let down in the worst way. When the police chief announced this case had shifted to a homicide investigation, it was clear that he was doing all that he could to hold back his tears. Working on a tip, investigators turned to the local landfill to look for what they said was a potential piece of evidence. And this is where the trash services would have taken anything that would have come from the Baker residence. 
It had been speculated that they may have been looking for Zara's prosthesis, but after an exhaustive search of the landfill, nothing related to Zara's case was uncovered. Following the search of the landfill, authorities released the audio of Adam's 911 call reporting Zara missing. And this is when he started getting called out publicly for some of his inconsistencies. He claimed to have last seen Zara at 2.30 in the morning on that same day that he made the 911 call about 12 hours later. But a few days later, he told Good Morning America that he hadn't seen Zara since the previous Thursday due to his work schedule. Now, I believe Elisa was lying to him a lot. I don't believe that he would have been okay with the abuse that was going on. I feel as though if anyone was telling him that Zara was being abused, like family, friends, or neighbors, that Elisa was readily making excuses for the various injuries that Zara had sustained. And from what I understand, Zara concurred with what Elisa was telling her dad. Elisa may have actively been keeping Zara away from her father, perhaps telling him that she was in her room because she was in trouble, or she was working on homework, or she was asleep. Whatever the case, it was now apparent that Elisa was isolating Adam from Zara. And I mean, we can judge Adam all we want. I have my feelings about it. And I do find his passivity and inaction troubling, especially knowing what we know now. But it isn't lost on me that this man lost his child. And prior to that, he went through a lot with Zara and her bouts with cancer. And he did it as a single parent. He was lonely. He was leaning on his mom for support with Zara. He lived in a very small town, working in their only industry being the sugar mill. The internet opened up the world to this guy who was looking for something more. And he had the misfortune of crossing paths with the likes of someone like Elisa. Could he have done more? Should he have? Yeah, perhaps. We all have 2020 hindsight. And maybe I'm being more of a softy than most. I know Adam has been maligned back home in Australia, as though he himself was the cause of all of this. But I can't help feel that he was victimized by Elisa as well. Maybe you agree, maybe not. We can talk about it on the page and we can do an addendum if anyone has other opinions. I'm willing to speak to those as well. And as for Adam having seen Zara at 2.30 a.m., I believe he was going along with the story that Elisa had told police. She was the one to have first said that after they got home from Oktoberfest that Zara went to bed and she went and checked on her at 2.30 and then woke up again a little after 5 and found that fire in the yard. That was Elisa's story. And when Adam called 911 and said that he last saw Zara at 2.30, I believe that he believed Elisa last saw her at 2.30, not him. He was just relaying that information that she fed to him. And in his 911 call, he said, quote, The police were out here last night after finding a ransom note for my boss's daughter. I got up a little while ago, and it appears that they took my daughter instead of my boss's daughter. I don't know if they set a fire in the yard to distract us to go out and then snuck in the door, or I don't know. My daughter's coming into puberty, and she is in that brooding stage, 
so we only see her when she comes out when she wants something. Adam has been heavily criticized for these statements to 911, though I do believe he was as confused as anyone, but we would eventually know that Elisa confessed to penning that ransom note. But did Adam know that? I don't think he did. And I'm pretty sure Elisa was attempting to play up the kidnapping for ransom narrative, not only to authorities, but to Adam as well. And she had to make their ransom demand be made to Adam's boss, Mark Coffey, and not Adam, because she and Adam had absolutely no money to pay out any ransom. But Mark Coffey might be perceived as a likely target. And once it became clear that Zara was missing, not Mr. Coffey's daughter, it would be Elisa's hope that people would believe that Zara was accidentally mistaken for being Mr. Coffey's daughter, thinking that Adam was actually Mr. Coffey because he worked for him and then he lived in the house that he owned. If Elisa would have been able to pull this plan off, then it would appear to be a botched ransom demand. And once the kidnappers realized that they kidnapped a kid from a family that had no money, then they killed her and disposed of her body in some unknown location. And Elisa Baker would be off the hook for it all. And not only that, she would be able to play up the role of the grieving stepmother. She's told the media from prison that she loves Zara, that Zara didn't call her Elisa, that she called her mom. And it's absolutely stomach-churning to listen to her say this. I also believe that Adam thinking that Zara's reclusiveness being the result of the onset of puberty was yet another excuse fed to him by Elisa to explain her constantly wanting to be alone in her room. The man was very, very gullible, and Elisa played him like a fiddle. And in the midst of all of this, the investigation uncovered the seven marriages that I outlined earlier in the story, even finding that she had three marriages going on at the same time at one point. And when they found out that she was married when she married Adam, they slapped her with the bigamy charge on top of everything else. So beginning on October 24th, 2010, Elisa began going with authorities to specific locations near where she used to live in Hudson, North Carolina. Police would later reveal that Elisa led them to the location as she was telling them that they would be able to find evidence of Zara's remains in the drainage pipes of the home. It was speculated that the investigation tracked the location using Elisa's cell phone records, but also... It was believed that she may have been working on a plea deal with the district attorney and the prosecutors, and part of the deal was to lead them to Zara's remains. But authorities at the time were being tight-lipped about what was going on with Elisa Baker behind the scenes. The following day, on October 25th, investigators took Elisa to a second location near another place the Bakers had previously lived, and again, it was speculated at the time that Elisa was directing them to more locations where evidence could be located. And then, two days later, on October 27th, Zara's prosthetic leg was located near the intersection of Dudley Shawls and Christie Roads, which was close to the second location Elisa had directed investigators to. They would also find a scattering of bones nearby as well, strewn about the area near where Zara's leg was discovered. She was in a place where 
people had often left animal carcasses from hunting and things like that. On November 12, 2010, four days before Zara would have turned 11, it was announced to the media that the remains found were positively identified as Zara Baker's, the chief of police stating, quote, It is with great regret that I stand before you today. I have been dreading this moment since early on in the investigation. As investigators, we are trained to follow leads, but never give up the hope that the evidence may take us in the wrong direction and the outcome may be different. We have recovered enough physical evidence to believe that we have found Zara. And by this time, Zara's biological mother had flown to North Carolina from Wagga Wagga to be there for the announcement that her daughter's remains had been found. They were also going to make the DNA comparisons to confirm what they already knew to be true. They knew because of the bones they found, they were consistent with what they knew of Zara's leg having been amputated prior to her death. It would later be revealed that Zara was dismembered and her actual cause of death was never able to be determined. At this point, they were not able to find all of Zara's remains, nor were they able to find her head. Elisa would go on to say that all of this was Adam's doing. He was the one who wrote the ransom note. He was the one who dismembered and discarded Zara's remains. But I do not believe her story, mainly because despite all of Adam's poor life choices and decision-making, he did fully cooperate with the investigation. He was arrested for charges unrelated to the case, and he was out on bail for those. And he would later go on to be deported back to Australia as a result of the charges. Elisa, through media interviews and letters sent from jail, would try to continue to push the narrative that Zara died as a result of a serious illness, that Adam panicked and wanted to get rid of her body. And that's her story, and she's sticking to it, despite the fact that she would go on to plead guilty to second-degree murder. In at least one of the letters, she never said that she or Adam killed Zara, but that Adam had done something horrific after Zara had died, writing, quote, We really didn't kill her, but what he did afterward was kind of horrifying, and it makes me scared of him. He knows what happened to Zara, and yet I'm the one sitting here at least for now. The cops know where he is and what he has done. So I probably am going to go ahead and file for divorce. I have lost my whole life anyway. Okay, lady, you lost your life, right? Elisa's the victim, right, dreamers? Ugh, I can't with this woman. In Elisa's January 2011 version of events, Elisa told police that Zara died on September 24, 2010, two weeks before she had been reported missing, and it was Adam that dismembered her in order to facilitate disposal. This date does conflict with what the furniture store employees had said, but that could just be a slight mix-up on one or both of their parts. She claimed that Zara died of natural causes and that both she and Adam worked together to dispose of her the next day 
and this was all because they didn't know what to do when they discovered Zara had died. Adam, of course, denied that he had a hand in the dismemberment of his child, stating unequivocally, quote, There's no way I could do that to my baby. There's no way in the world I would hurt my daughter. And I believe him. In February 2011, the North Carolina Medical Examiner released a report on Zara's death and officially ruled out that Zara had died of natural causes. However, there were not enough of Zara's remains recovered to be able to make a comprehensive determination of how she died. The medical examiner did conclude that Zara died from undetermined homicidal violence. Her skull, her right arm, and most of both legs had not been recovered. However, on April 17, 2012, a hunter found a skull in the woods about 30 yards or so off a dirt road in Caldwell County. The skull was sent out of state for testing, and 10 months later, in February of 2013, it was positively identified as Zara's. I was unable to find any information about the skull and what it revealed, if anything, about her possible cause of death. On February 21, 2011, a grand jury indicted Elisa on second-degree murder charges, noting her history of physical, verbal, and psychological abuse of Zara. They also accused her of secreting Zara from her family, including her dad leading up to the killing, and desecrating Zara's body in order to conceal what she had done. Adam Baker would not be charged with anything involving Zara's death, finding that no one other than Elisa Baker had a hand in what happened to Zara. Elisa avoided the potential of a death sentence by helping lead investigators to Zara's remains, and she was charged with second-degree murder because the cause of Zara's death simply could not be determined. On September 15, 2011, Elisa Baker entered her plea of guilty to second-degree murder and was sentenced to up to 18 years in prison. In March of 2013, Elisa was sentenced to an additional 10 years in federal prison related to some drug charges. According to court documents, Elisa obtained prescription drugs using multiple prescriptions from physicians and other sources in Catawba County. She conspired with other individuals to possess with the intent to distribute oxycodone, hydrocodone, and alprazolam. She had in her possession about 12,000 units of oxycodone, 10,000 units of hydrocodone, and 29,000 units of alprazolam. Elisa was selling the drugs from her home while Zara was in her care. In this 10-year sentence, she will start serving when she is done with the 18 years for Zara's murder. When given the chance to speak in court, she stated, quote, I apologize for my actions and take full responsibility for what I did. Elisa Baker will be 70 years old when she is released. The community of Hickory, North Carolina, was and is devastated by the murder of the little Australian girl who came to America to begin a new chapter in her life with her dad and his new wife. To have survived cancer twice, to have endured the pain of cancer treatment, losing her leg, 
losing her hearing, to have overcome all of that, only to be taken out by a woman who was entrusted with her care. You cannot look at pictures of Zara Baker and not feel the enormity of the loss. There are no words that can be spoken here that can express the devastation that Elisa Baker has rained down on so many people and so many lives. People that didn't even know Zara across two continents. There just are no words, my dreamers. What can be done to honor the memory of Zara Claire Baker? The justice was had, but it doesn't feel like enough. The world dealt Zara so many bad hands, but she never folded. She was all in, heart and soul. She loved and lived life to the fullest. Today there stands the Zara Baker All Children's Playground in the city of Hickory. And it is exactly that, a place for all children, differently abled and otherwise, as it is accessible for children of all abilities. Following Zara's death, it was discovered that social services was called to the Baker home at least four times, but caseworkers found nothing to be concerned about and would close Zara's case. In the review of the actions taken in Zara's case, the Department of Health and Human Services for the counties of Catawba and Caldwell investigated the actions taken by the department leading up to Zara's death and provided its report in August of 2012 as to their findings as well as their recommendations. But I'm going to only talk about their findings as their recommendations are quite lengthy and there were failures on several levels when it comes to Zara Baker. Finding number one, the school personnel with Caldwell County Schools were attuned to Zara's needs and were persistent in trying to resolve those needs, utilizing team collaboration among school personnel to provide comprehensive services to Zara. There were some concerns among school personnel about Zara's needs being met that were not reflected in formal reports made to Caldwell County Department of Social Services. Finding number two, the parent and caretaker purportedly used homeschooling in order to hide their maltreatment of Zara. There is no indication that an application to homeschool Zara was ever actually made. There is no coordinated means to track children when they move from another school system or an alternative educational plan. The compulsory attendance law does not require parents to provide relocation information or an educational plan when the child is withdrawn from school. Currently, there is no other known code or policy in place regarding time frames in which parents or custodians must notify the school from which the children are withdrawn of their enrollment in another school or verify another educational plan. Finding number three. The North Carolina Division of Social Services, in collaboration with county departments of social services, developed a structured child protective services intake form for uniformity of decision-making across the state. Decisions at intake are based upon information provided by the reporter and documented in the structure intake form. The Child Protective Services Structured Intake Form does not have a distinctive field for entering information regarding the alleged perpetrator's numerous aliases, previous Child Protective Services involvement known to the reporter, 
or the names of adult children, which may be helpful in identifying any previous Child Protective Services involvement. Departments of Social Services are only able to review county records regarding Child Protective Services history when determining if a report meets all the definitions for assessment. There is no immediate access to information sources such as Child Protective Services reports in other counties, the National Criminal Records Database, or cross-matching alleged perpetrators across other databases. Finding number four. On January 29th and May 28, 2010, Caldwell County Department of Social Services received protective services reports alleging neglect of Zara. In regard to the January 29th report, Caldwell County Department of Social Services met policy requirements by initiating family contacts and home visits within the time frame to begin the assessment and they completed some collateral contacts as prescribed in policy. In regard to the February 4, 2010 report, Caldwell County Department of Social Services, as directed in policy, combined the information from the new report in the already initiated assessment regarding the January 29th report, but there were important pieces of information missing at the time the case decisions were made at the completion of the assessment. This information could have been obtained if the following activities had been completed. Verification of medical information on the child's injury and current medical status. Addressing all of the allegations in the original report. Additional inquiry regarding the impact of prescription drug usage by parents and caretakers. Identifying the prior Child Protective Services history of all caretakers. Interviews with absent parents and caregivers. And interviews with additional persons who had knowledge of Zara's well-being. In regard to the Child Protective Services report received on May 28, 2010, Caldwell County Department of Social Services in the Child Protective Services Assessment conducted timely visits to the home and interviewed the child privately. However, additional actions by the Caldwell County Department of Social Services may have ensured that all relevant information was secured during the May 28, 2010 assessment, including screening the reported injury as an abuse report and conducting an investigation assessment requiring a more forensic approach rather than a family assessment, which is typically completed for neglect reports. Conducting a face-to-face -face interview with the father. Verifying medical information provided by the caregivers regarding Zara's injury and current medical status, including arranging for a physical examination of Zara by a physician. Photographing the physical injury that was reported. Making diligent efforts to locate and interview all family members with relevant family history information. Accessing and reviewing the Child Protective Services documentation of findings from the January 29th assessment. Obtaining the Child Protective Services history of all caretakers. Contacting absent parents and caregivers. And in addition, some administrative issues were identified regarding the conduct and management of the assessments, including the level of supervisory oversight needed to be stronger and more direct. Documentation of communication with collateral contacts made during the assessment needed to be clearer. And assumptions made during the assessment gave the appearance that the Child Protective Services case decisions were not as objective as they should have been. There was limited collaboration and communication between community partners, 
such as school personnel, medical providers, and law enforcement, resulting in critical information not being considered in the Child Protective Services Assessment. Finding number five, Catawba County Department of Social Services met policy requirements by ensuring that an after-hours worker responded to the home within the prescribed timeframes, met initiation requirements by ensuring all contacts were made with the child and family, completed the safety assessment with the family, and interviewed the child separately. The after-hours social worker ensured documentation was submitted the same day of initiation. Criminal records check and central registry history were requested in the July 28, 2010 Child Protective Services Assessment. During the July 28th assessment, additional actions were needed to ensure that all relevant information was secured, including verifying medical information to explain the child's injury and current medical status, making efforts to ensure all collateral contacts who have relevant information were interviewed beyond those named in the original report, such as school personnel or verifying homeschool enrollment. Ensuring that multiple workers contacting the collateral contacts debriefed each other regarding information they gathered. Thoroughly assessing substance abuse allegations and prescription drug usage. Making attempts to contact absent parents or caregivers. Conducting adequate research on the origin of all the bruises on the child. Assessing the potential for violence within the family and evaluating criminal records and the central registry history of the caretakers. Finding number six, policy is established in North Carolina to provide guidelines for adhering to statutory responsibilities and best practices to assure a measure of consistency across all counties. Policy provides basic requirements which local departments can enhance as the local need becomes evident. Prior to issuing new policy, the North Carolina Division of Social Services consults with the directors of the County Departments of Social Services to establish a balance between being prescriptive and providing flexibility for professional discretion in County Departments of Social Services. So service plans will be tailored to address the specific safety, permanence, and well-being needs of children and their families. There are no restrictions in policy on County Departments of Social Services requiring additional staff activities beyond those basic requirements prescribed in statute, rule, and policy. Finding number seven. Currently, a statewide automated child welfare case management system is not in existence. A central registry is available to track children who have been maltreated in North Carolina, but its use is significantly restricted. County Departments of Social Services do not have access to information regarding the existence or nature of current or prior Child Protective Services reports in North Carolina when evaluating reports to determine if the statutory requirements are met to initiate an assessment. Any statewide system software should have the capacity for the following. Attaching files for medical information and photographs cross-referencing children, parents, and other relatives, and have multiple search functions. Any statewide system should include access to the school database, the Department of Public Instruction database, 911 call logs, criminal background checks, online verification for all 100 counties in North Carolina, North Carolina Controlled Substances Reporting System, 
the Department of Juvenile Justice, Department of Public Health, Central Registry, Medicaid Management Information Systems, the North Carolina Division of Non-Public Education, and links to other database systems to be an asset in assembling child safety. Finding number eight. The concern was expressed that parts of the child welfare in North Carolina pre-service training could be perceived to give priority to being family-friendly versus safety-centered in child protective services assessments. Through the website ncswlearning.org, the North Carolina Division of Social Services makes available information on all training requirements for social workers and supervisors in child welfare and other service areas, including requirements for job-specific training and timeframes in which social workers and supervisors are required to complete them. The current child welfare in North Carolina pre-service training includes a transfer of learning element to assure that supervisors play an active part in the social workers' initial training. The North Carolina Division of Social Services encourages participation of county staff members in monthly webinars and periodic regional meetings focused on addressing practice concerns and providing a forum for feedback. So what they're saying in their report, basically, is it was a breakdown in communication across pretty much every agency involved a failure to implement best practices, failures to cross-reference, failures to document information properly, failures to complete comprehensive investigations, failures in staff training, and failures in ongoing personnel development and training. So prior to Zara's death, there was no law on the books in North Carolina that specifically made it illegal to dismember a body, believe it or not. But as of December 1st, 2011, Zara's law went into effect, making it a felony to disturb, vandalize, or desecrate a human body in an attempt to conceal a death or a murder. It was realized when the district attorney poured over the law books and realized there was nothing they could charge Elisa Baker with when it came to the actual dismemberment of Zara. There was not any law addressing this issue. They searched and did not find the word dismemberment, with the DA stating, quote, There are things that the legislature doesn't anticipate. Yeah, you just don't think what happened to Zara could ever be a thing, I guess. There is a memorial in Hudson, North Carolina, dedicated to Zara, and on every November 16th, her birthday, Residents in the community come by to leave flowers, balloons, and notes in her memory. And they will not soon forget the little Australian girl with the freckled face and the smile that never quit. And it's a constant reminder that if you see abuse, report it. Azara couldn't be saved, but maybe the next one can be. And that brings this 76th episode of California Dreaming to a close. I want your opinions, dreamers. What do you make of Adam Baker? There are some who think Zara's blood is on his hands as much as Elisa's. So what say you? I'm going to post the question on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. 
and we will get all of your opinions and how you feel about her father. And if we get enough feedback, we can put up an addendum to the story to include what everyone thinks, since I've pretty much told you how I feel about him throughout the story. If you would like to discuss this case in more detail, or any other cases that we've covered, please feel free to request and join the California Dreaming official Facebook discussion page. There we have cultivated an amazing community of listeners and true crime aficionados who share their thoughts and opinions on all of our cases that we cover, as well as current true crime stories, other current non-political news events, TV shows that we enjoy, documentaries, books, whatever you find that you would like to share, please come and join us. You can also follow the show on Twitter at California Pod and on Instagram at California Dreaming Pod. And don't forget to check out California Dreaming's Patreon. For as little as $1 a month, you can gain access to the more than 16 exclusive episodes on there as well as early releases to the regular episodes. California Dreaming is proudly brought to you by the Orbital Jigsaw Network. We are a podcast production company located in Los Angeles, California, with a mission to create some of the best podcasts to listen to, to consistently improve upon our current roster of shows, to develop new content that appeals to people all over the world, and to provide a thriving community for listeners and podcasters alike. I'm very proud to be a part of this amazing group of shows and hosts. So please visit our website at www.orbitaljigsaw.com. There you can find links to all of our shows and episodes, as well as our merchandise store. You can also email us and tell us what you think. That's www.orbitaljigsaw.com. Thank you again for listening, and until next time, sweet dreams. And there go my dogs right at the end. Good timing. This is Brew Crime, a craft beer and true crime podcast. I'm Mike. And I am Beck, and we are your hosts. On Brew Crime, we each take a true crime story and we pair it with a craft beer. You can find our show on your favorite podcast apps. If you can't find it, contact us and we will try to change that. We can be found at www.brewcrime.com or on Twitter at Brew Crime and also on all the social media platforms for Pacific Beer Chat at Pacific Beer Chat. We can also be found at Brewcrime at PacificBeerChat.com. Join us as we discuss depraved killers, stupid criminals, and likely some completely unrelated tangents. Cheers. Cheers.